Aloha, and welcome to another Candid Conversation. Today, we're joined again by Alex Schusler, and we will continue the process of the discussions that we've been going through where we started with the statement Alex did of systems, businesses have gone from paper to glass with the arrival of computers. So we want to use that as the platform, the springboard, and just continue that discussion as to where Alex sees we're going. So Mr. Schussler, welcome aboard. Dr. Schussler, excuse me. Welcome aboard. Good to see you. It is great to see you again, Ron. It's um, I'm in California. Alex is in the Northeast. Did you get nailed with all of the winter? Oh, yeah. Nailed not is nice. a good expression. Oh, no, not nice. <laughs> not I, nice. I, I, you know, I think you were talking, we were talking before you started, you're going to have to get smarter. You got to go further south so that you can avoid that stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm working on that. Yes, I understand. That. <laughs> yeah. Alex, yeah. we started with the paper to glass which I think is a very profound and simple expression that allows people to understand that we didn't really use computers. We just duplicated everything we did manually, but instead of it being on a four, six part form by pen, it was now on a 1920 character screen with a keyboard. Didn't really do anything. Where, how did we get out of that phase i think it's got to do with information isn't it oh yeah i think it's actually i mean that's a great way to put it um you know many years ago i think about 15 years ago um 17 years ago i was asked to give a presentation and they really wanted to parade around what we were doing this was in the early years of smart equip and um and we were known as one of the companies that would digitize stuff and information was being uh, digitized, and and everybody assumed uh, wrongly, as you just hinted at. Uh, everybody assumed that by digitizing it, um, things would become a lot more efficient. And uh, so they invited me to give a keynote address in Europe, and I went in, and uh, it was actually called from paper to glass. So that's why that concept hasn't sort of haven't been able to shake that off um, from paper to glass, or why digitization makes things worse. And that's exactly what they didn't want to hear. But I was taking a lot of uh, case studies and saying, look, just like you used to have uh, parts catalogs on in big books, often they were not even uh, unwrapped yet. Uh, they were at the service counter until you needed them. And then you either couldn't find it or had to unwrap it or where there were pages missing because um, somebody else had used the, the, the pages they needed when they did their repair. But just by throwing it from paper onto glass, and if you remember long ago, there was something called the microfiche, uh, where all these things were on film, basically, that you then needed a special reader. Uh, they were really treating a lot of the computers as modern-day microfiche. They used CD-ROMs. They might have been online, the early ones. Um, but, um, but for the user, the technician, things actually became harder, not easier. They now had to sort of uh, archive all these little uh, film cards. They had to carry the stuff into the field. Um, uh, th they suddenly had to do things that were easy to do with a book and they couldn't. And so then the question was, well, we're all assuming this is being done to make life easier for the user. Um, and so we started digging in because this was kind of our field um, and we had a different approach to it, but we needed to understand why we took that a different approach ourselves before we went too far. And so we started talking to the manufacturers and there's one uh, well-known manufacturer and we asked him, why is it that your parts book 
costs two hundred dollars a, a, a volume or a piece, a unit. And their answer, which surprised us even more, was, "Well, that's because we subsidize it. It actually costs us more to do them, and that's why we're eager to put them on glass." So it really was cost savings for the manufacturer in this case, uh, and it was harder for the user to use. So it actually, in a way, it was what we would might call a zero sum game, which is one party gains, the other one loses the same amount, roughly. Um, so it was just being shifted there. Um, it was really only when the information itself became um, uh, presented in a, in a in an intelligent way and allowed you to do things that you couldn't previously do, uh, that things became smart. That's when you had the smart catalogs um, and, and the like. Uh, it wasn't because we we when we built our parts catalogs and started this kind of technology, we said, hey, wait a minute. Once it's machine readable, there are all these things that you can do you couldn't do before. Um, in a book, you would look up a part, you would make sure it's the right drawing, you would make sure it's the right serial number um, for that drawing since they vary. Uh, the drawings vary by serial number, and then you would start identifying the part, you would write it down, you would go into another system to see if you had it, then you would check on your shelf to really make sure you had it, even though the system said you didn't, or vice versa, uh, and all that. Um, and we said, well, wait a minute, if it's machine readable, um, click on it and let my other system tell me if I have it. Uh, or how many of them I have. And if I don't have it here, tell me automatically have it in another location. So, so don't think of it as at the display level, which is from paper to glass. Think of it what happens uh, underneath the screen or behind the screen uh, and how you can start chaining those together. And that's where the real efficiencies are. Uh, and that's where the real innovation came from. Um, now uh, click on that page that's now presented to you. Uh, have it tell me where the parts are. Have it automatically generate my purchase order by putting that information in the purchase order, in my work order. And then ultimately, and this is where we became very involved, if you're generating all of this information on your system, have it simultaneously uh, create service orders and, and the like uh, from the uh, at the dealer or, or, or manufacturer where you're actually buying these items uh, and, and do it to all these systems. So it's really the intelligence that that that's that innovation of intelligence is where the efficiency came from, not just by putting it on, on panels of glass. Also, I think a reflection of the, the, what you're talking about is the creation of a database. It's the creation of, of a series of files that are accessible by computer. And we had to go through some struggles with that because we're talking about pretty large files. And at the beginning, it's it's not like I can go out and spend 50 bucks and buy a couple of terabits of storage on a stick. I used to have to spend $100,000 for a 44 megabyte disk drive and a bank of eight of them. I, I, it was a million bucks. And I had, congratulations, 400 megabytes of storage. Um, and, and that's overstated versus, you know, a million bucks to 15. So that also allowed this, but all of a sudden now we're talking about processes, methods, procedures. And along the way, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that you're going to be consistent with my thinking. Along the way, people are resisting this change. So we have to kind of adapt to that, and we are slowed down by that. And management's about implementation, and we've got a whole bunch of people, especially with technology, that were risk-averse. And they held us back. Yeah. I mean, From the you're time you got into Smart Equip, which was what, 2000? Uh, January. Uh, we incorporated March of 2000. We started in January. Yep. Okay. So I dealt with the microfish in 1969-70. 
And there were three different magnifications, depending on who the manufacturer was. It was a riot, Alex. And you're right about books. They were costing two to 400 bucks. It's like a textbook at university. The professor writes the book and he sells it to his class for 500 bucks a copy. And I have, I have a neighbor who's a professor. He said, you should buy my textbook. I went to look at it. It was 495 bucks. I said, give me a copy. <laughs> it, it's, so now we got this information and we got it in a database. And a lot of people can now start dealing with things. But that starts challenging our thinking again. Yeah, I think you're you're uh, touching on two really important things. And, um, you know, it's... I, I'm, I've always been fascinated. Well, we had to be fascinated by the history of, of some of this, especially on the technology end. So you're touching on two things. One is the notion of that database uh, or the digitized data and the information and all that. Yep. And the other is, as you mentioned, resisting change. Uh, and there are two different, uh, two these are two very different things, but obviously they had to collide uh, in all of this and, and somehow this somebody had to make this work. So on the um on the database side there there's a really fascinating in, uh, history here it has nothing to do with our industry it has everything to do with where technology came from and where it was going and what it hoped to achieve and um nobody talks about this much anymore it's not at all trendy because it's old um but there was a period of time in the 70s um where in the 80s especially where a lot of faith was being put into this .net technology uh, microsoft for a while was big in that and but so were all the erp systems and the idea for .net was that uh, everything everybody would converge on a standard for data everybody would converge on the same kinds of rules and when they did they would sort of all be installing um fully compatible erp systems sort of enterprise systems and all of that, and, and they would magically all talk to one another as if they were one. Um, and that convergence never happened. .NET did bring us one beautiful thing, which is it created rules, uh, uh, repeatable rules for how you could access data from other machines. Um, and they're called APIs or application, uh, they're, they're interface layers. Um, and those were done. And so it's much, much easier if a system today will typically always have APIs so that another system can read data from that and write uh, back in. So that came from it. But the uh, the intelligence that everybody expected, like these systems would now magically act like one didn't. And we came along during that time. And uh, rather than say, hey, we're going to set up some big, huge data exchange in the middle where everybody can park their own parts information, we knew that would never happen. Uh, certainly not in this industry, but it, as we learned later, it didn't happen in any other industry either. With There's a little bit of that, actually, oddly enough, in the trucking and transportation side, but that's a very narrow uh, version of this. Um, and we said, we have to find a way to bridge these systems. So if you're, if you're a fleet owner, let's go back into our industry, you, you own a whole bunch of equipment, uh, you have a dealer. And uh, then you've got different uh, manufacturers for your fleet. And all the information that you tend to maintain in your own system, it's called an item master file, which is where do what these are the parts I need. Uh, this is the kind of machines I have and so forth. Uh, they, they need regular updating. And we said, well, rule number one, there should be no updating. If somebody at John Deere, if somebody at Caterpillar, if somebody at the case in New Holland changes, a, brings, brings along a new part, uh, for those machines, uh, they should automatically be written into your system. And so that was for us a big deal. We respect that, that you have what we call a system of record, your suppliers have a system of record, and all we did is tie them all together that if there's a change that pertains to you, 
uh, your item master file would self-update uh, when you try to order that part, for example. If it doesn't exist in your file, it'll go and what is it? It'll add it and they'll do it all dynamically. So in a way we were doing what .NET was promising uh, would happen, um, but you actually had to build technology in between it uh, to make it happen and use these APIs that it came with. So that was the approach to data. Everybody that looks at these systems today, to, uh, at our technology and say, hey, this is pretty easy. Uh, it's because you don't see the plumbing in the background of what had to happen to get all of these uh, different systems to talk to one another. So that's one part. The other part, which is in many ways the more interesting human dimension in all of this, is um, the resisting change side. So here you go, you walk in and you say, hey, uh, we're not just going to put it on glass. We're going to make all this stuff interactive. We're going to allow it to tell one system, tell another system what to do. Uh, and then you, when you come with a sort of vision, um, you're being very naive because you think, okay, the organization is immediately going to change what they've been doing for generations, and they're just going to hop right in. And, and that's the wrong way to do it. So there's this whole literature. Business schools uh, do a lot about it, and we've seen a lot of it, which is they call this the balanced scorecard approach. And what it means is essentially what it, the world it lives in is that you come in with a new technology, and you do exactly what you've been doing to date, but you do it uh, faster, more accurately, and 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 with a great deal more efficiency. So let's take an example: a piece of equipment. Let's say you you own your fleet and you're running it. Um, a piece of equipment comes back from a job. It gets inspected. You say, "Aha! Uh -huh, there's a repair that needs to happen." You create a work order. Uh, you identify the parts you need in your own inventory, which you have. Uh, and then you say, well, actually, there are, we need 10 parts. We only have two of them. So let's go ahead and order the other eight. Well, who do we buy these parts from? So you then look at your preferred supplier list. You say, well, what region am I currently in? Okay, I'm in Wisconsin. So my preferred supplier for this is, uh, is A. A doesn't have those parts. What's my backup supplier? B. So you go there. You call them. And A likes it when you look online. B likes it when you call them. C wants you to send a fax, whatever it is. So you really work your way through them. And then when you finally have the right part, that you need are the parts. You go back to your own system, you generate a purchase order, you send that purchase order number to them, they give you a sales order number, the stuff arrives. At the end of the day, the fact that you just ordered a $50 part, so $50 are irrelevant. You just spend several hundred dollars of labor time and equipment downtime trying to get all of this. So we came with this new technology, just like a lot of other companies. This is not a smart equip specific story. We came and said, hey, we can make all this stuff go really fast and you can skip a lot of steps. And instead, we saw that the only implementation that worked well was when you put the system in and everybody did exactly what I just described, but they did it electronically. So the equipment would come back, they would click on something, it would generate a work order automatically. Uh, they would say, hey, I need these parts. So they would click on the different parts diagram that would pop up a specific serial number and the machine or, or our system would tell them, yeah, uh, two of those you have in your own stock because we just read your other system, but the other eight you have to order. And by the way, this is your preferred supplier. They have them and the other one, uh, they have six of them, but the other two you've got to get from your backup supplier. They can be here tomorrow. Here's the correct pricing. We've already put it in your purchase order. We've already sent the PO to them. We've already got a sales order back. So all this stuff I just described happens electronically and interactively. And you go, wow, this is great. And these guys are happy as can be. Um, because they can now do in minutes what used to take several hours and was error prone. So that's a big shift, but there's still something that they're not doing. And there's still something that leaves you um, frustrated. And that is, guys, if we can do all of this um, and, and, and you wait for them to say, you can't tell them, you wait for them. And we just had this um, a few years ago, my favorite example, somebody in the Netherlands where we put the system in, 
some guy came back and says, guys, if we do all of this, why do we need a work order? So now you're not saying, let's go through the same lines. Now you're saying, let's do it differently altogether. And their boss said, what do you mean? Why do we need a work order? Of course we need a work order. How are we going to do service work without a work order? Um, and he said, no, but think about it. The reason we have work order in our company, this is a very specific uh, interpretation, is because we want to know what each machine costs to maintain. And we want to see exactly what that machine consumes in parts. We want to assume what, what it consumes in service uh, units and hours. Um, that's really why we have them. That's the only reason. And we want somebody to look at a piece of paper and say, this is what you need to do. Now we have smart equipment here. Again, you can find, I know my our example is the best, but this is true for virtually any technology implementation. Yep. That at some point yep. this happens. And they'll come in and say, hey, um, if we place the order, the system already knows who the part is being ordered for, meaning which machine it goes to. Uh, we can very easily just say, hey, yeah, it took two hours, boom. And we know what our internal rate is. So let's just uh, bypass work order altogether. And so that's when it gets really exciting. You're not just doing what you've always been doing, but doing it faster. If you think of it geometrically, it's says your, your innovation curve, or your, your, sorry, your process curve, as a, you make it steeper because you're getting better at it. Now you're saying, well, wait a minute, we can do things in a new way and you can just shift it up. And the last thing on all this is if there's one thing that this whole balanced scorecard um, uh, literature has taught us, um, trying to leapfrog directly to the outcome by saying, hey, guys, we've got something completely new. Forget everything you've ever done and do this almost always fails. Whereas if you put it in and then have somebody in the organization and, and good organizations always have sort of their pilot crew and they get involved and they roll up and they know the uh, key performance indicators, they get involved and they come back and they say, guys, 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 we can actually innovate the work process, uh, the, the, the workflow now, and we can continue to do this on a quarterly, annual, whatever basis and sit down and, and, and measure these. And that's when it gets really, really exciting. So that's a big, big shift from, uh, so there are really two shifts we just described. One was get it off the printed page onto glass and then recognize that that's a bit of a step backwards, at least for the user, not so much for the manufacturer in this case. Uh, second thing is start doing everything that you, you've been doing before, but you're getting so much faster and better and more accurate at it uh, with, with, with the whole process. But then within that, uh, have a whole different type of innovation happen that, that was never available before. So that's a long-winded way of uh, describing this and meandering to what .NET uh, role was. But that was the, that outcome was always the dream from these technology innovations, .NET and other, but it requires the user to go through all of this. And it also required technology to, to take a slightly different path than, than what was originally uh, envisioned. One of the things that I hope everybody realizes is Alex is fundamentally a technology guy, a disruptor, a thought leader, but you just heard him describe every single process in finite detail off the top of his head. He's got a knowledge of what was done and how. And we don't have a lot of that anymore in, in the IT world. Too many of them are chopping the top of the waves off. So let me, let me go backwards and, and address some of the things that Alex was talking about, because that was a perfect representation. What caused some of this was the larger customers all of a sudden had access to information and that was one of the barriers to entry but the large fleets had access to information that the dealer had it was the same and once they saw that now they started getting pushy 
So example, in your example of using different brands, I'm a cat, I have cat machines, I have Comanche machines, I have deer machines, I have Volvo machines, the four major product lines in the construction world. I don't have similar formats in anything from any of those manufacturers, even today. So you built with Smart Equip the information base, the database, if I can call it that. And an illustration I want to use is IBM and programming languages went through the same iteration. We had COBOL and machine language and uh, Fortran and all manner of different things. Yet IBM used a thing called APL when they built their software themselves. And APL was an array structure of logic rather than an iterative structure. We've gone through the same iterative thing here. Computers come in, where do they go? Where the transactions are? What are they trying to do? Make it more accurate, faster. Okay. And now what you're doing is you're talking about process efficiency. And I'm going to call that now the customer experience. Balance scorecard kind of aims at the customer experience. What do the customers need and want? What do we need to excel at to satisfy that? And then off we go. And change resistance is drives me nuts. There's some of us that are weird and like change, embrace it, seek it. And there's others that for all they can do, I don't want to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm a Ford guy. I'm going to be a Ford guy my whole darn. I'm a Republican. I'm going to be a Republican my whole life. I buy such and so bread, you know, it, it's unbelievable. And now we've got artificial intelligence popping its head up. And the, the changes that can come from that are dramatic. So that's a long response to you. But the guy in, in the Netherlands that said, why do we need a work order number? That's, that's brilliant. Oh, it was, uh, I mean, it's brilliant. It, 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 and, and the fact that we played a role to have him um, innovate. That's a hundred times um, more effective than us trying to come up with this. Amen. I mean, absolutely, because that's a, so that's a big win. Uh, that's a huge win uh, for for that company, but also for anybody trying to bring a technology in. You know, you said one thing, um, and I want to maybe fine tune it a little bit. Um, it's it's not a database in the, anymore. That was the original dream. And that's what this whole .NET thing was going to be about, as if they were all part of the same database. You're exactly right. They all have, everybody has different, um, uh, you, you mentioned the four main uh, Earth guys. They all have different formats um, in, in, in the way they do things. Uh, and it's absolutely unthinkable uh, to tell one of them or to tell three of them, hey, we'd like you to do it the same way that the fourth one is doing it. That's just not going to happen. Uh, the other thing uh, that's and, and so therefore people thought, OK, somebody should come along and normalize the data and have it to be a shared database that we just then need to update all the time. And that's not doable either. That's just meaning there's another. And then we're always going to be behind if you do that, especially in something that's as fast moving as parts. So the approach we did is not that we create that database in the middle, but we become what what one of our customers called kind of a universal translator. So we understand how. Uh, manufacturer A organizes their data and B and C. We understand how they understand serial numbers differently, but from the user's perspective, you no longer need to be uh, be able to navigate those differences. Our system will do it and it will present that data for you yep. in a unified form yep. without the, the backend having to do anything differently. So we're actually doing a service for those four companies. Um, um, and, and they don't have to do that effort or maintain multiple standards. And we're doing it for the user. 
And we do it without uh, keeping our own version of all of this. We just do it on the fly, dynamically into your workflow. So that's, I think, very, uh, very important in all of this. Um, but the other thing you mentioned, um, which is now the big trendy term, and it's really fascinating to watch what's going on there is AI and, 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 and that kind of stuff. Because now we're getting to a point where we have so much data flying around and it's becoming more and more exponentially by the moment that um, you can start the, 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 the data volume. It's not just the number of different sources, although that's absolutely critical, but it's also the sheer volume coming from each of those sources that's now enabling you to do something very, very differently. And there, and then I apologize in advance, now I'm nerding out not about computer technology, now it's going into statistics. Um, they're the big break. and and. We all say artificial intelligence. We don't necessarily always know what it really means or refers to other than that somehow machines miraculously are getting smart. There's something very, very specific. It's a huge break in statistics, which is it used to be that you would have a data, cent a data set, uh, you would collect it, you'd massage it, you'd sort of organize it nicely, and then you would run statistics on it. Uh, but to do that, you would have to have a hypothesis. For example, I believe that the older my oil uh, gets or the longer in the interval between oil changes, the more I'll have uh, the following four problems. And that's my hypothesis. And then I go and collect uh, all these uh, service records. You guys ran for 50 hours, you guys ran for 5,000 hours and everything in between. And I try to correlate it with everything else. But you walked in with something called a hypothesis, right? And the role of statistics was to test that hypothesis. And there it was. What so, and, and, and that's really all you could do. And if you were just trying to uh, randomly correlate things, you'd be in deep trouble. Um, you might get results, but these were usually called spurious results. And then AI comes along. And what they do is they say there's so much data, uh, so much enormous, uh, enormous amounts of data are, are there that um, it's now the machine that's starting to uh, recognize how things hang together. Um, now, like I said, you need enormous amounts uh, of, of, of data to be able to do that kind of thing. But it is really an enormous break that you no longer need to, uh, a hypothesis you test. The machine now starts reporting back to you, hey, Ron, you know, in certain circumstances, given certain temperature uh, ranges and dust and whatever and, and, and working conditions, here's what you can, here's the life you can expect out of oil versus for this kind of machine, maybe a different manufacturer, different process, different temperature settings and, and so on. So it will start telling you uh, not just the answer, but it also helps you helps define the question for you, and that's a big, big break. And and that's where a lot of the changes are happening now. One thing, and 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 it's really interesting. I don't know what to call the database terminology, so I'm just going to leave it out there like that. I think like paper to glass, we're now in another evolution that's data to information. We have data everywhere, voluminous volumes of data but very few people have been able to put that into manner of information that the majority of people understand what it is. So for instance, we know with sensors, with telematics, with technology, we know the number of hours on every machine that's out in our territory. We also know when that machine was purchased. We know how many hours they use a year. We know what the life cycle management data is. So we would be able to say the probability is in the next 12 months, these machines are going to need to be replaced. Mr. Salesman, go see them. Nobody does that. It's the same kind of 
how do we get to from where we are to there that we're going through? So here comes all this voluminous data. Here's a great example this morning. Uh, it was announced that they're going back and reworking all the climate models and using data from the last 50 years. And the early results indicate that the climate models that we've had so far are totally wrong. Interesting. So the hypothesis that you used as the example of coming in to look at something, double exponential smoothing to make a forecast of what you're going to need in the way of parts over the next six months, boom. That hypothesis no longer is a hypothesis. It's a statement based on data. You've sold 15,000 machines in the last 10 years. That's 1,500 a year. Number of hours is X. The parts and service consumption is Y and Z. And that turns out to be 6%, 7%, some fixed number per year of parts and service. Here, here. So all of this stuff starts to become predictable from paper to glass, like you say, was regressive. We went backwards. It took us longer. The data was not quite, I didn't trust it because I got a, a printout instead of my Cardex card. And that printout was a week to two weeks long, late. We're, we're, we're in a very interesting place. The balance scorecard, to me, is a wonderful tool. Six Sigma pumps holes in the fact that if you've got an error rate of 1%, it's not 1%, it's 1% on each of the process steps. If there's 10 steps, the error rate prob the probability is 10%, not one. That changes the whole dynamic. So here comes my life cycle on a repair. Here comes my standard times on the repair. And like you said, that oil never operated at a greater temperature than X in an environment that was clean. There's no dust. Well, no, I don't need to change it at 500 hours. I can change it at 800 hours. And it's a completely different dynamic. We don't have... The, the leadership in the dealerships, and this, this is not exclusive to us, 55 to 75 are the people that are driving this industry, and they are risk-averse. 45 and down is where 99% of the purchasing is done. Those two generations don't necessarily communicate well with each other. The Gen X, Gen Z, millennials, they want to make changes. They want to make a difference in life. But the baby boomers, of which I'm on the back end, Nah, don't do that. I've got enough trouble. I just, you know, I don't have recovery time. We can't do that. So we find all manner of reasons why we don't do things. You know, it's it's uh, one of my standard lines with my kids and everybody is, what would you do if you weren't afraid? So you make a mistake, big deal. What am I going to do, shoot you? You know, I remember Bob Hewitt, who worked on the Caterpillar dealer that I started with. And it's 1969. I'm in the warehouse and I got a sweatshirt on and I'm jeans and I'm dirty. And he comes out and he's elegant. He's a three-piece suit. He's a six-two, six-three. puts his arm around my shoulders and gets up close and personal. He looks at me and says, Ron, I'm really disappointed in you. And I looked up at him and I said, me too, eh, Bob, What what's your disappointment? And it kind of took the wind out of his sails because that's the kind of jerk that I was. He was annoyed because the highway going into a dam project at Churchill Falls was blocked by snow, and I had stock orders that hadn't yet got to the store. And his comment was, you should have ordered that stuff earlier. And my response to him was, did you really believe that I was going to be able to predict that snowstorm? 
Because if I was, Bob, I wouldn't be working with you. I mean, it's a different world, right? So we've got all of these people, and, and that's what our challenge is, Donald. It drives me crazy. We've got to find the people that are going to be the ones, the instruments, the architects of these next stages. Because you and I have opened the door. I'm going to call it that. We've gone further than that, obviously. But there's got to be more people that come along behind to tell us, no, it's not just a work order I don't need. You don't need this and this and this. And I don't know who those folks are. Well, so I'm a little bit biased because I've, in terms of equipment owners, the ones I've seen up close, uh, for the most part, were in the rental industry. Um, and, and you know, it's, it's such an interesting industry. And I got to know the industry in the mid-90s, and I've seen it evolve. And what happened there is, as you know, um, it really came into being, at least in North America, through massive roll-ups. Um, yep. yeah, there was a company once called U.S. Rents, U.S. Rental, U.S. Rents. Uh, it became United Rentals. And then there was a uh, race between what then were the two largest companies. It was United Rentals and Nations Rent. Both of them grew much larger and much faster so uh, than either of them expected. Uh, Nations too much so than it later became, it, it went bankrupt and then came back and then now is part of Sunbelt Rentals. So, so there's a lot of stuff that happened there. And the reason I'm mentioning them, is, there are really two reasons. One is um, certain types of rental industry were really ahead of the game because in a way they were a pre-pre-precursor to what we now call the shared economy. Um, a lot of them, and I'm not so much thinking of many of the mom and pop organizations that were there, but there were some that were quite innovative and they said, look, uh, nobody wants to go and, and, um, and, 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 and buy a piece of equipment. In fact, they don't even really want to rent a, ham a drill, let's say. What they want to do is they want to buy a hole. And renting is the closest you can do to buying that hole uh, and then giving it back and only paying for that output that you really wanted, which is buying that hole. And so I think there was there is something uh, more innovation friendly from the user perspective because they're selling innovation to their end users. So so I think they, they, there was a receptiveness there. But the other thing is is a little bit more straightforward, and that is these companies that came out of nowhere and became very very large. They knew that a single percent or two percent lift to what they were doing efficiency wise had an enormous impact on the shareholder. And so they were looking for all of this. And they were also turning to technology that the people that started these large rental companies did not come out of rental. They came out of Wall Street. So they were looking at, they were kind of agnostic and not kept um, uh, focused on rental specific stuff. They were looking at throwing anything they could. So I think we see a little bit of it there. The other thing that I think is really interesting now, when you look at AI and other innovations, it's the technology companies themselves. Uh, there are few companies that come out as pure technology companies. They already all have a flavor of the problems they want to solve, number one. Number two, because everything is now SaaS, um, you can rent the solution. You don't have to buy tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of technology. No, you just start renting it. And if it doesn't work, you you, you stop renting it. I mean, it's a, it's a subscription model. Um, and so it makes it accessible to, to pretty much everybody. So some of these new AI companies, um, uptake is the one that really stands out in all of that. Uh, they're the ones that are showing you. They said, let us do it. They said, let us do this. Let us demonstrate it. And let us take a cut of the, 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 the benefits we bring to you. So I think I feel much more optimistic about abilities now to come in and do this on this kind of entrepreneurial type of approach um, with certain types of uh, customers than I would have, let's say, 10 years ago. Yeah, I agree with that in a couple of different directions. One of the points that you're making is uptake as an example. 
originally you had to buy the computer. You had to have your own site. The rentals changed that. So I don't need to buy a car. I can rent it. That's one of the places it started. Or um, payment programs at department stores. If you wanted to buy that washing machine, you had a, a time payment circumstance. Now we've got credit everywhere and credit cards and all the rest of that stuff. And artificial intelligence, I don't know that that's the right term, but being able to manipulate data and have the data tell us what we didn't know is not something that we should be surprised at. We don't have the time or the inclination to go backwards and find out, you know, what the heck is this all about? I, that kind of, that's kind of the stuff where I live, where I'm, that I love. It's the curiosity in me, but we're, we're at the, at, you know, your .NET solution, automotive scare, shares a lot of data, a lot of parts data, a lot of time repair data, et cetera. Construction equipment doesn't share any of that. Volvo, if you want to get data on a catalog, um, that never leaves the Volvo computer. You have to go up, access it, and bring it down and take a piece. Um, it's a futile resistance trying to control. It's, it's you know, it's 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 impossible. Uh, people's curiosity. We're going to find all manner of ways. And and you know, just look at the evolution of all of the technology. This isn't should be surprising. Word processing, word perfect at the beginning, and paperclip and various things and SAS is coming along, IOTS, you know, here we go, everything's there. But we don't have people that have the critical skill, thinking skills that we once had. Education is not delivering to us the workforce that we need to have for the coming 10 to 20 years. Jobs are going to have skill requirements that people will not have. So we're going to have adult re-education and in and out of the workforce. It's kind of shared data. It's going to be shared labor pools also. It's going to be really exciting. And it's not something that I, you know, like I, I can't visualize it. Maybe you're closer to being able to visualize it, but a guy who's 30 years old, he'll be able to take us there. It's just the way life is. This wonderful transition. You know, we've opened up so many different chapters in this 40 minutes, 35 minutes, whatever, that we require another year of discussions back and forth. We need to broaden the base. Um, this is terrific, Alex. I, I really think we've taken it to the next level on the paper to glass discussion. Any any thoughts from your perspective? You agree with me on that, or, or where where do you think we are? I do. No, I do agree. I think it's um, it is. There's so much going on right now. And, um, you know, when we, again, and, and I keep saying this, I'm, I'm thinking back to our examples, but when we came in um, with our technology, um, you didn't have a sense of movement around you. Um, you were just starting to see dot-com stuff uh, on the consumer side and the, uh, on, on the online stuff there. But the idea of actually suggesting that somebody have a screen in their building and set something up in their data center and so on, was an uphill battle because it wasn't there. I feel the big difference today is that even though there's, you're absolutely right, there's a great deal of resistance, um, but the culture that surrounds us is one of constant change on the technology side. It's such a cliche to say this, but um, 
the argument today is no longer should we do technology. Uh, the 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 pushback is: Are we going to change our best practice? Are we going to change the process flow and so forth? So at least we've got that going for us, right? And then the very last part, um, which is the other puzzle that that often gets overlooked, um, you go into a new entity or you go into a company and you offer them a big solution, which is so obviously a technology solution. Again, Smart Equip is an example. A lot of the telematics stuff is an example and so on. But what you overlook is for the organization itself, it's hardly ever an IT project anymore. If you get Salesforce, that's not an IT project. You need to train everybody, of course, like you do for IT things and so on. But you're not setting up servers. You're not setting up anything. You're now starting starting next month. We're going to all pay a, pay a big uh, license for Salesforce. You pay monthly subscription fees for Smart Equip. If you're a supplier, you pay transaction fees for Smart Equip. But you're not actually doing technology. You're subscribing to this technology that somebody else is doing for you. And that, too, should be something that takes a lot of the natural resistance out of the, out of the equation. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, you know, it's in, in almost every aspect. Look at Amazon, starting with books. And then look at what Kindle did to revolutionize reading. Uh, and physical space and libraries. And there's and every aspect of society. You know, as, as you're aware, I'm 75, my daughter's 45, my granddaughter's 20, three different generations. And... My granddaughter's use of technology, even though technology is what I was educated in originally, but I'm so far out of date anymore, you can't keep up with the stuff going on. She she uses things just like I would use a pair of running shoes. You know, it's just so natural. My grandson at 16, he's never had a world that doesn't have Google. So, you know, research is a completely different animal. I mean, it's it's really fascinating. I Quite frankly, I can't think of a better place and time to be living. You know, if you're if you're curious and interested, boy, is there ever a lot out there for you to be able to get put your arms around and take on? I think we've come about as far as we should on this particular podcast. Um, I think this has been great, Alex, and and thank you so much. I it, I hope you're feeling about the same way as I am that we've 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 come a a far way again with this discussion. I always enjoy our discussions, and I do think um, relative to where we started a few podcasts ago, um, we've. I, I think much as uh, some of this today has been more historical and broad and more abstract, uh, we're going deeper and deeper down this this path. Um, and I think yep. we've we've we've. And what's been interesting, um, thinking about this in between our um, get-togethers is. Just, uh, I don't think we've changed direction once where we began. I think we put a lot of definition around it, but it it's been a it's been a consistent uh, direction. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we're on the we we have a good vision of of where that path is, and we're on it. And thank you very much for your time today, and to the audience, thank you for participating and being involved. I hope you pay attention to what we were talking about. There's been a lot that's covered here, and I look forward to having you with us again in the near future. Mahalo. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We appreciate your support. Should you have any thoughts or comments, please don't hesitate to contact us at www.learningwithoutscars.com. The time is now. Mahalo.